right? It's just the greatest thing to anticipate all that God has promised, to have a God who is a promise-keeping God. We're uh, studying together in a place in the Bible uh, that uh, is addressed to a great church, the church at Thessalonica. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there if you'd like to uh, follow along. Uh, And this church was made up of uh, great people, right? Uh, No church is any better than the people who make it up. And so uh, there's a description of these people in chapter 2. And we saw that uh, what made these people great is that they had an encounter with the Word of God. And they figured out that uh, and recognized that it was the Word of God. It wasn't just the Word of man. And so they embraced it as the Word of God. We left off in uh, the 13th verse of the second chapter, which says Paul is talking here to this church. And he says, we thank God constantly. We're continually thankful to God. For this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And when the word of God began to get inside of these people, it changed them. And it created this church at Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul is writing to this church because um, they embraced the truth of God and they had questions about their future. Uh, They had questions about uh, the Lord coming back. They had questions about the new Jerusalem. They had questions about the timing, about heaven. They had questions about the future. And one of the unique things about the Word of God is that the Word of God speaks about the future long before it ever happens. Uh, One of the proofs that the Bible is actually the Word of God is the fact that God lays out promises uh, before they happen, hundreds of of years before Christmas, uh, there are all kinds of uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus. There are at least 50 uh, specific, unique, and different um, prophecies about Jesus coming long before Christmas, and every single one of them literally fulfilled as Jesus came. And so the Bible then has lots to say about Jesus' return, and um, that's what these people were concerned about. Uh, what is the, the, some of the questions that were raised by the fact uh, that Jesus was going to return. And so um, Paul addresses this church, and through this, these two letters, um, we learn that Jesus is coming back, and he is going to usher in a time where everything that's wrong in life is going to be made right, just like uh, the choir just sang for us. Imagine a time when all the tears will be gone, and all the pain will be gone, and all the confusion, and and all the misunderstanding, and all the anxiety, and all the things that we don't like about life uh, will be gone, and usher in a period of time where everything will be right. That's the future that this church in Thessalonica believed in. But again, it raised some questions, and it also raised some opposition, because not everybody uh, believes God's word. And so when God's word began to get into these people, there was some opposition, and Paul acknowledges Uh, that this church, this great church in Thessalonica, was not like, you know, a country club church where everything was just great, but this church uh, endured a lot of suffering and a lot of grief as a result of embracing God's word for what it really really is. And so uh, in verse 14, the next verse, Paul writes to them and he says this, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered... The same things from your own countrymen 
as they did from the Jews. Now, if you're familiar with, you know, church history, uh, when Jesus came, uh, the first converts were Jewish, right? And, uh, but the majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus. And so as these individual Jewish people would embrace and put their faith in, in Jesus as their Messiah, uh, the majority of people gave them a hard time. And so there was a lot of suffering uh, that went on. If you read through the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul uh, you know, uh, writes about this. In fact, Paul was one of the guys who was running around trying to kill the church. And so he started out you know, in opposition uh, to Christ until he was converted on the road to Damascus and, and so on. And so this church was in Greece. You know, Paul, the gospel uh, went to Europe when Paul went to Philippi, and after Philippi, he went here to Thessalonica. And so here, there were some Jewish people, uh, and they kind of stirred up everybody. You read about it in Acts 17 when Paul went to Thessalonica. Uh, but um, most of the people were non-Jewish people, or what are called Gentile people. Most of the people were kind of like us, who are non-Jewish people. And Paul says, you know, this church suffered from their own people the same way uh, that the Jewish people gave a hard time to the first converts to Christianity uh, in Judea, around Jerusalem and in Israel and so on. And uh, I think we can understand this, right? I mean, you yourselves have suffered uh, when you speak up, when you speak the truth, uh, God's truth, and you are, in fact, I think a lot of times we're unwilling and we keep quiet Uh, about the truth that God has revealed to us because we know that on the other side of sharing it, you're going to take a hit. Uh, At least you know that you'll be misunderstood or that you'll face some kind of opposition. And so, uh, you know, we understand what Paul's talking about here. Um, I almost think that what Paul is saying, if you put this together with other places in Scripture, it's kind of like being willing to suffer for the truth that God has revealed to us is an indicator of living a God-first life. It's almost like suffering is a, a, a badge, if you will, or, a, 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 you know, in, in fact, Paul, he's Jewish, right? And he's writing to these people in that 14th verse, you notice he calls them brothers. For you, brothers, were imitators of the church, of the Jewish churches, and you suffered the same way from your countrymen the way we did from ours, and, and so on. And he calls them brothers, and Paul's Jewish, and these are uh, uh, Gentile people, but their commonality in Christ Uh, supersedes their racial differences and creates this kind of brotherhood of people understand each other when they take a hit for standing up for God's truth, right, and for God's word. And and when we share with one another and and, uh, we're an encouragement to each other, we can identify with what Paul is uh, saying here. And I think that's why in the 13th verse we noticed... um, You know, Paul says, we're constantly thankful that uh, you people received the word of God, uh, which you heard from us. They first received it, then they accepted it, and then it got inside of them and it controlled them. And there's this kind of three-step process. The word of God was, first of all, kind of received with their mind. They understood it. Uh, They uh, studied it. They read in the Old Testament and so forth, and they listened to what Paul had to say, and they received it, and they received it in their minds, and then it got down into their hearts where they believed it, Paul says. They didn't just receive it, go to church and say, yeah, I agree with that, okay, goodbye. No, it got down past their heads, down into their hearts, and they accepted that, wow, this really is the truth, and what's the impact on me? What's the difference that this makes if this is really true? And then not only did they get it down into their hearts, but then it says uh, Paul was really thankful for these people because 
um, when they accepted the word for what it really was, it began to work in these believers. It got down into their will. It began to control their choices and decisions. It changed their values. And uh, that's what created the opposition. And uh, their priorities, their values, their worldview all changed. And um, once they changed, then their spouses and their kids and their parents and their friends and their boss and whoever, uh, you know, started to treat them differently. And they began to suffer for the stand that they took and for embracing uh, the word of God. And so not everybody, and Paul says, you know, you understand the suffering uh, that comes with taking a stand on God's word. And again, I think it's the same today. And uh, Jesus, you know, said this was going to happen. In John chapter 15, uh, you might remember, Jesus left these words with us. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. And if they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. You can't say, you know, that I love God, but I want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus came to reveal God. Jesus is God. And, uh, and Jesus warned us that when we embrace him, uh, we can expect that others uh, will reject us. And so suffering together kind of creates this uh, brotherhood that Paul talks about. But um, right after this, it's kind of like Paul got reminded about the Jewish people. And um, anti-Semitism is alive and well today, right, in our news all the time. Uh, just last week or the week before, you know, the uh, threats of bombs at Jewish community centers. Uh, Israel is in the news constantly and so on. And so listen to what Paul says next here in verse uh, 15 through uh, 17. He says, you know, you suffered the same things from your countrymen as uh, we did from the Jews, verse 15, who killed, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon the Jewish people at last. This is a fascinating passage of scripture, right? Who killed Jesus? Paul says, the Jewish people that killed the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable statement for the Apostle Paul, who's Jewish. Um, And if you ask the question, you know, well, who really did kill Jesus? Well, uh, obviously, the Roman soldiers were most directly involved in killing Jesus, right, the Romans. But they only did so, the soldiers, at the behest of the political machine that was in Israel, the Roman government. And they only did so at the behest of the Jewish people who cried, crucify him, crucify him. Remember? Who killed Jesus? Well, if you go on to read the rest of the Bible, you also know that it's true that you and I killed Jesus. 
that it's our sins as much as anybody else's sins that are responsible for Jesus' blood being shed. Right? Um, if you uh, read in John, uh, John's gospel, in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus himself says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my own life. Right? Nobody takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Uh, this charge I've received from my Father. Who killed Jesus? Jesus says, nobody killed me. I laid my life down for the sins of the world. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loves who? The world that he gave his only uh, begotten son. And so when we think about this, uh, this passage in our text in 1 Thessalonians is focusing on the role of the Jewish people in this whole thing. And right here, I would suggest to you, is kind of the, the taproot of what today is called anti-Semitism. A hatred for the Jewish people based on uh, their part in killing Jesus. And uh, while the truth is that everybody had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, the Jewish people have become sort of the world's scapegoat. Uh, I think for people who don't want to face the fact of their own sinfulness and their own contribution to the crucifixion of Jesus, the Jewish people become uh, a scapegoat. And there's a long history of hatred against the Jewish people uh, from the very beginning of church history all the way through the Holocaust all the way up until today. And uh, it's a long-standing. Uh, people are uh, kind of surprised, I think. Uh, this is a, a quote by uh, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, one of the great reformers. And uh, this is a quote uh, that from him. He wrote a brochure about the Jewish people. And uh, this was like about three years or so before he died. This wasn't like when he was a kid and was overzealous. This is like when he was a seasoned theologian and so forth. But just to give you a flavor of what church history has been like against the Jewish people, uh, this is Martin Luther. What then shall we Christians do with this rejected race of Jews. Since they live among us and we know about their lying and their blasphemy and their cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, their curses, and their blasphemy. In this week, we cannot quench the inextinguishable fire of divine rage nor convert the Jews. We must prayerfully and reverently practice a merciful severity. Perhaps we may save a few from the fire and the flames of hell. Uh, we must not seek vengeance. They are surely being punished a thousand times more than we might wish them. Let me give you my honest advice, Luther says. First, our synagogues should be set on fire. Whatever doesn't burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that nobody will ever be able to see a cinder or a stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and his Christians. Second, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies, 
in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land, as they boast, but miserable captives, as they complain uh, incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Third, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds, in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught. Fourth, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. And fifth, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to Jewish people. For they have no business in the rural districts, since they are not nobles, nor officials, nor merchants, nor uh, the like. Let them stay home. If you princes and nobles do not close the road legally to such exploiters, then some troop ought to ride against them, for they will learn from the pamphlet, this pamphlet uh, what the Jews are and how to handle them, and that they ought not to be protected. You ought not, you cannot protect them, unless in the eyes of God you want to share in their abomination. To sum up, dear princes and nobles uh, who have Jews in your district, uh, if this advice of mine doesn't suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jewish people. Martin Luther. See, people are shocked. They're like, wow, I didn't realize that there was this anti-Semitic sentiment that ran from the beginning of the church, starting in Jerusalem, what Paul's talking about here in Thessalonians. And he's saying, you know, we suffered from the Jewish people. And that kind of anti-Semitic spirit has gone on and is still very much alive today. Now, it's true that the Jewish people are chosen by God. It's true that the Messiah, Jesus, that we come here to worship this morning is Jewish, right? Uh, God made promises to Abraham about the Jewish race, about their role in the world that are unconditional. And God reiterates in Genesis chapter 15, remember, uh, he, uh, it's called cutting a covenant and he separates animals and God, and usually the two parties who make an agreement walk through, but God walked through by himself as if to say, you know, I'm going to do this whether you help me or not. It's an unconditional promise that God made. And God made promises about the land of Israel that are repeated over and over in the Bible. And still today, we're arguing over the land of Israel and who owns it and who gets to do what with it. And uh, he gave the law to Israel. He gave the temple to Israel. He gave miracles to Israel. He gave uh, history. The history of Israel is uh, a miraculous history. And um, he delivers them time and time again. He gives them gifts. He gives them the Messiah, even the Savior of the world. Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul reiterates this in verses 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's scandalous that the Jewish people refused Jesus. It's scandalous. It's painful. And uh, it's shocking that the Jewish people, after all that uh, God has embraced them with, uh, would reject Jesus when he came. And Paul feels that. And uh, he longs for his fellow countrymen. If you read uh, the whole chapter, chapter 9, you'll see Paul, Paul is like, you know, I wish that I could be accursed so that God could lift this curse off my nation and these people could find Christ. And Jesus said this was going to happen in uh, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, I always think of this on Palm Sunday. Jesus says this, 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. That's exactly what Paul said to the Thessalonians. They killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. They uh, fight against, they come against the apostles. Uh, they refuse to allow the good news of the gospel to go to the Gentiles and, and so on. And here's Jesus talking. Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Here came Jesus to the Jew first, but the Jewish people would not have him. And so your house is left to you desolate, Jesus says. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're not going to get it until I come back, until I return. And uh, Jesus, you know, Uh, told a story, well, he told a lot of stories, but in Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells a story against the Jewish people, and and he says, and I don't have time to read the whole thing, but basically he says, you know what, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a landowner who left his land in charge of some uh, servants and then went away for a long time. And when the time of the harvest came, you know, the landowner sent back a servant, and the people who were working the uh, the, the land, you know, uh, mistreated the servant, threw him out. And so the owner sends another servant and then another servant, and they just reject and reject. And, and that's the prophets that God sent to the nation of Israel, that they would embrace uh, their Messiah, Jesus. And so finally, uh, the landowner says to himself, um, after he sends the third servant, uh, verse 13, he says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what am I going to do? I know, I'm going to send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. And then in verse 14, the tenants who saw him said to themselves, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And uh, a little bit later, um, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on uh, Jesus at that very hour because they perceived that he had told this parable against them. And they were right. Jesus told this story you know, about uh, what they were like and what they were doing and, and what was really going on behind the scenes between God and between these people. And so when Paul writes in Thessalonians here, listen now again as you have that little bit of background, uh, he says, you know, I know that you're suffering like we did from the Jews, verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. This is Paul's assessment of the Jewish people uh, to this church, right? And they oppose all mankind by hindering us, doing everything they can to stop us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, uh, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, to fill up the full measure of their sins. Paul's like, just like always, just like the long history of the Jewish people and their rebellion against God, just like always... They're true to form. They've rejected the Messiah. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. And so when you think about this, the Jewish people, in fact, do have a long history of rebellion. The Bible says that what happened to them, uh, the Jewish people, is actually written down for our benefit. If you want to know how God really is, study uh, the history of the Jewish people. Go all the way back to the beginning, our promise-keeping God, and uh, you want to understand how God interacts with people, 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about how uh, everything was written down in the Old Testament for our benefit, that we could understand the truth about the way God really is. And so um, when we think about this, this rebellion of the people against God, we think about their, uh, you know, their history from when they were delivered out of Egypt and uh, on their way to the promised land. Think of the, the golden calf. Think of the grumbling against God for, you know, think of the desire to go back to Egypt and forget what God was all about doing and so forth. Think about the history of the Jewish people during the period of the judges and some of the wild and weird things that happened and the way people reacted. And, and uh, think about some of the kings and the corruption and think about the state of Israel right before the Babylonian uh, captivity came in and took them over. And so what was going on here? All of that's written down for our benefit that we might understand the truth about God. And we could talk, you know, all morning long about uh, the history of Israel and how they, uh, what Paul is saying here to this great church in, in Thessalonica, uh, the situation with the chosen people. And you know, they do have a long history of rebellion. But what about... Um, the history of the non-Jewish people, the history of the Gentile people? What about the history of the majority of us and, and uh, realizing that, you know what, the promises that were made uh, were really made to Israel and not to us. And the Apostle Paul takes this up in Ephesians. There's a number of places, but in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, I think we have a, a great description of um, just uh, our position before God uh, as non-Jewish people. Uh, Verse 11, therefore uh, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Before Jesus came, we were, look what it says, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before Jesus came, what was the condition of people who were not Jewish in terms of a relationship with God? Paul says we were totally blinded to everything God was all about. He was working through the Jewish people. He had made a promise to Abraham, and that promise that he made to Abraham was to go to the Jewish people and through the Jewish people to quote all the families or all the ethne of the earth to every different race and family of the earth. But what if the Jews drop the ball? What if the Jews rebel? Now, it's always been possible to get right with God apart from becoming Jewish. Uh, Ezekiel 18, for example, is a place that talks about that possibility. It's not likely. It was rare, but it was possible. And Paul talks about that at the beginning of Romans. Uh, But my point here is just that, you know what, before Christ came, what was our position? Most of us who are non-Jewish were total strangers to the promises God made to the the Jewish people. And we're separated, uh, the Bible says, you know, from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And uh, that's not a, a great position for us to be in. But then when Jesus comes, notice, you know, how Paul changes And uh, he says in chapter 3 and uh, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my thought into the mystery of Christ. When Christ came, everything changed. And part of it was a mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles 
people like you and I, are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise that God made to Abraham way back in the beginning in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was a big switch. This was a big deal that all the way up until the time of Christ, we were left out of the promises of God. But when Christ came, all of that changed. And uh, God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. So part of this, um, we have to understand the last phrase that the Apostle Paul used in, in, in our text this morning. He says, God's wrath has come upon the Jews at last. God's wrath has come upon them at last. What does that mean? When Paul said that to the Thessalonian church, what does that mean? Well, you know, the Bible explains, and uh, in Romans in particular, uh, the Bible explains that there has been a partial, right, and a temporary hardening of the Jewish people. A partial and a temporary hardening of the hearts of the Jewish people, of the majority of the Jewish people to the message of Christ. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob or Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a really interesting passage of scripture. What does it mean? God's wrath has finally come upon the Jewish people. And this is a key passage. How should we uh, think and feel and act toward the Jewish people today? Paul says, look, a partial hardening has taken place. Um, it's partial. There have always been individual Jewish people who have come to Christ, but the nation as a whole has never turned to Christ, like is prophesied in the Old Testament, right? The whole nation of Jewish people. And uh, it's partial, and it's temporary. It's not permanent. You'll notice, um, lest, you know, I, I feel like I want to talk to Martin Luther, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery a partial hardening has come upon Israel, but it's temporary. It's only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Do you mean to say, Paul, that God has set aside his chosen people in this fashion in order that people like you and I might be engrafted into the promises of God? And do we sense that privilege? Do we sense that God was intentional? You know, um, uh, this is such a key passage. It's temporary. And uh, you'll notice, you know, uh, it says that there's a partial hardening uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then, then all Israel will be saved. What's the result of this partial hardening? Uh, all Israel eventually will be saved. There is a future for Israel. There are many people in the church today who say God is done with Israel. But if you go to this passage and study it, it's a partial hardening. It's a temporary hardening. It's not permanent. Okay? And uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, prophecies about this goes back to Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament. 
And Zechariah prophesies a time uh, before Jesus, you know, uh, even came, uh, where God says this, I'm going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, Jesus is talking, on him whom they pierced, Jesus, right? They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the uh, plain of Megiddo. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. There is coming a day that the choir sang for us about the new Jerusalem and so forth, there is coming a day, right, when the Jewish people as a nation, all Israel will be saved, will recognize the one whom they pierced. And on that day, there will be this fountain that opens up to forgive them for all of the sins, and they will embrace the grace that you and I are privy to today. Uh, And all Israel, on that day, Israel will become a Christian nation. And it will shock the world to see the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God to his promises, even to Israel in spite of all their rebellion, on that day. And that will begin uh, what uh, the Bible calls the millennial period of time, when Christ comes back and uh, they look on the one whom they've pierced and there's this massive repentance and the whole nation uh, turns to Christ and the world observes it, and uh, this millennial period that the Bible talks about where the new Jerusalem uh, comes down and so forth uh, begins to take place. The whole status and position of the nation of Israel will change. Uh, And this is a quote here in um, Romans from Isaiah chapter 59, 60, 63, 64. If you read around in there, there are prophecies. Your imagination just goes crazy with what it's going to be like when Christ comes back and there's this millennial reign and all Israel uh, will recognize him for who he is. And so if we're to understand the situation of the Jewish people today, we have to realize that um, uh, while they are uh, enemies of the gospel, uh, they are still loved by God for the sake of the promises that God made to them. And uh, for the sake of the forefathers who went before them. In Romans uh, chapter 10 and verse uh, 21 uh, of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Isn't that a sad verse? All day long I have held out, all history long, I have held out my hands to a people who've been disobedient. And uh, now they have been hardened. And uh, we can go to 2 Corinthians and read kind of the same thing. Uh, Individuals are turning to Christ, uh, but not the nation. And uh, it's just like in the beginning. And in verse 11, uh, Paul asks this question of uh, chapter 11. So I ask, did the Jewish people stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble or did they fall and they can't get up, right? Did the Jewish people stumble in order that they might fall and be done altogether? By no means, Paul says. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
Why did God harden the hearts of the Israelites against the gospel? So that salvation can come to the whole world, right? So as to make Israel jealous. To be jealous, right, is the fear of being replaced. Whenever somebody's jealous, what does that really mean? It means they're afraid of being replaced. Israel has been the apple of God's eye. Israel is referred to by God over and over again as my firstborn. And Israel has enjoyed that place, that that center place, that chosenness by God. And now they see and sense that uh, people like you and I, the church, is beginning to enjoy the favor of God. And we enjoy the security of having a future that's been promised to us as well as them. And they're becoming jealous. And Paul's like, that's what I want the church to do, to make the Jewish people jealous. I want you to live that life of love and joy and peace and and patience and and, uh, experience the reality of my presence in in my spirit and your spirit in order that the rest of the world would become jealous and want what you have, you know? And, uh, and, And then he goes on, he says, you know, Uh, Verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, if the Jewish people rejecting Jesus means uh, this great treasure, riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, meaning us, listen, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What will happen in the world when they are folded into the family of God once again? And it'll be, I think, the kickoff of that whole millennial period that the Bible describes. In um, verses 28 and 29, uh, Paul goes on and uh, I think describes uh, what's happening here. Uh, You'll notice that he says, um, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God. But as regards election, chosenness, they are loved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Isn't it good that we have a God who makes promises that are irrevocable? God will never change his mind. You ever get you know, sideways with somebody over some contract or something and some lawyer who manipulates the whole thing to change it all on you? God that will never happen with me. All right? As regards the gospel, you know, so the Jewish people, are they enemies of God or are they loved by God? Yes. Both. Talk about the tension, right? Uh, Living in the tension. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. God allowed that to happen so that you and I could be brought into the favor of God. But as regards election, they're still loved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gift of the calling of God Uh, are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is a, a fascinating, again, passage of Scripture. God's calling is irrevocable. There is a future for Israel, and I would say if you want to understand the future, keep your eye on the nation of Israel. God is not done with Israel yet, and that's why 1948 was such a significant. 1948, when Israel was reconstituted as a state recognized by the world, is a fulfillment of a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament. 
And it's really exciting. It's a miracle of biblical proportion. And yet most of society is oblivious to what happened back there in 1948. In fact, uh, God is going to put on display his faithfulness uh, to this rebellious nation and so on. And uh, listen to Paul reason this out in um, verses uh, 7 and and 8 in um, Romans chapter 11. He says, what then? How, How do we put this all together? What then? Uh, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel's been seeking a Messiah since Genesis chapter 3, right? There's a promise of somebody who's going to come and and make Israel great again and so forth. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was seeking a Messiah. Some people obtained it. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them, God gave them, a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see, ears that would not hear, Uh, down to this very day. Verse 11, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles uh, so as to make Israel jealous. If their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their inclusion uh, someday mean? This is a great thought. There is a future for Israel. And when they're included, uh, it'll, be, it'll change everything in terms of uh, how they're treated. And so um, how is it that we're to interact and understand the Jewish people today? Uh, again, um, can I suggest that we read a couple of verses here, um, verses 17 and 18? If some of the branches were broken off, how is it that the Gentiles got included? He's talking about like an olive tree. If the root is holy, so also are the branches If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches that were broken off. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jewish people, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of the Lord. Speaking of tensions. Note the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Is God kind and loving or is God severe and judging? Yes. Yes. Right? Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Anti-Semitism is bad. You put your own salvation at risk, according to this passage, when you become anti-Semitic and misunderstand what's going on with the Jewish people today. It's just wrong. And uh, I'm out of time, I understand, but... uh, the kindness and the severity of God. As regards the gospel, they're enemies, but that's for our sake. And as regards their choice 
They're loved by God. And we need to do uh, uh, the same way that uh, the Apostle Paul lays out here. We need to have the right attitude uh, towards the Jewish people that some of them might be saved and come to Christ and look forward to a day when all Israel, the whole nation, uh, will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is uh, such a difficult um, passage for us to grasp and to comprehend and for us to communicate uh, with those around us. And uh, when we think about the history of the church, it just seems to me like from the very beginning of church history all the way to the Holocaust, all the way to today, uh, the church has been uh, sort of silent. Uh, the church at times has been arrogant and proud and, and not understood that you went so far as to not only sacrifice your son, but uh, in a sense to sacrifice your chosen people so that we Gentiles could be folded in to your promises. A great privilege, a great way for us to understand history. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would teach us by your spirit the truths of uh, what Paul reveals here in Romans and in, in Thessalonians, and that our uh, attitude toward uh, the Jewish people uh, would be proper in your eyes. And uh, forgive us, Father, for otherwise. And uh, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.